Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, here for episode 29, where we're going to try something a little bit different and give you a little taste of uh, last week today as we go through and talk about several different major events and major issues that have happened in the last couple of weeks that we'd like to cover all at once because we want to talk about all of these issues, but we also don't want to talk about any one of these issues for too long. There are a lot of important things that are going on that we just don't want to talk about. We don't want to focus too much attention. Last week, we talked about big tech and free speech, as it were, and and we're able to devote a lot of time to that. And as we looked at the next few issues we could talk about, we realized that that we're just going to get them out of the way. You know, that, that makes it sound terrible, like you shouldn't listen to this episode at all. It's garbage. No, it's actually a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of stuff that people need to talk about. Just, just not made, that long. Yeah. Just not as long. <laughs> not very long. And to start us off with that list, we've got Trump's impeachment trial coming up. The impeachment trial is set to begin this Monday, and it's not going to be very exciting because Trump is simply not going to be impeached. As of right now, we already know that they just don't have the votes. And I said impeached, but technically it's it's to confirm, not confirm. There's it's not there's to, not really good constitutional language for it. It's just yeah, there's the trial. not. The trial's yeah, happening. They're going to the try his impeachment. Yeah. Exactly. And which will either kick him out of office or they won't kick him out of office. That's what it comes down to is will Trump remain president after this impeachment trial? And I, for one, am on the edge of my seat to see whether or not they actually kick Trump out. <laughs> yeah, this is really gonna change everything. And if they kick Trump out of office. Who will replace him? That's yeah, exactly. That's the question on everyone's I mean, mind. It's, it's a big deal. <laughs> In all seriousness, yes, it's, it's a symbolic gesture because Trump is out of office and they're still going through with impeaching him. And, and after they try his impeachment, it is possible if, if he is fully impeached for them to, to limit his ability to run for high office again, which, number one... They're not, they don't have the votes. They know they don't have the votes, so they know they won't be able to do that. And number two, whether or not the Senate can try an impeachment after the person is out of office is pretty clearly unconstitutional. I went back and read up on it just to verify, and, and yeah, there's the purpose of impeachment is to, is to remove someone from office. Once they're out of office, you've lost all right to impeach someone. Right. You impeach the president. They're not the president. What what is happening? Yeah. What is this thing that's happening? You mentioned the symbolic nature of this. This is one of those things that you could spend hours and hours and hours studying the way that an impeachment trial works, the the purposes of it, how it's happened in the past, what the results are gonna be, you know, what everyone thinks of of whether or not he should be impeached. And at the end of the day, this is a show. This impeachment is not actually going to change anything. With the exception of maybe it will satisfy a few people on one team. Now, you may remember that Trump was actually, this is the second time they have tried to impeach him. And I found a, an interesting statistic on this that, I, that surprised me. I would have thought that since the last time people were talking about impeaching Trump, that a lot more Americans would be interested in impeaching him. Now, after the Capitol building riot and after the election, how he talked about it and those kind of things, I'd have thought that public opinion would be shifting against Trump on these issues in a significant way, you know, maybe 10% or 15%. When they tried to impeach him before, there was 45% support, according to the polls, for impeaching him, for a conviction from the Senate trial. Today, there's 47% of Americans who think the Senate should convict Trump. A 2% change, the standard polling error is about 2.5. And so that makes it within the margin of error, which is to say, there might actually be less support this time. In either case, it's not enough to be statistically significant, which tells you that the battle lines are already set. And that what's happened lately has not shifted them. That the two sides are so cemented, even as of a year ago, 
on which side they are on to the point that everything that's happened the last couple of months has not changed really anyone's mind in terms of a significant number of people. That people are where they were a year ago and that basically nothing will change their mind. Yeah, and if you want to survive, if you want to have any longevity in watching politics and not lose your mind, you need to know when it's a show and when it matters. And this is a show. This is a show. And maybe it's a good show. Maybe, you know, maybe this keeps the Democratic base happy. Maybe it keeps whatever percent the Democrats have content with their elected officials. And maybe the Republicans are putting on a good show on their end, right? They're, they're saying the things necessary during this trial to convince their voters that they still have their back. In which case, this could be a win for the elected officials on both sides. The show could do its job effectively. But it is not going to change American politics in any significant way. It's not going to change the law. It's not going to affect policies. It's not going to affect the philosophy behind the policies and the, the ideals of the parties. It, it just doesn't. And so if you're interested in watching the show, that's fine. Enjoy the show. <laughs> you, know, you can get into it. Go ahead and get riled up. Go ahead and talk about why won't the Republicans support this? And, and why don't they see this? And you can, you can join in on the anger. But it will do no good either way. It's not going yeah. to change anything. Yeah, you don't want to invest too heavily in it. Now, you know, there there is the question that's been raised of of what kind of precedent will be set by having, you know, a trial to impeach a president after the president has already left office and the precedent that that sets because that's something that the Congress does not have the power to do. They don't have, you know, the constitution is very clear that they do not have the right to uh to request a, a bill of attainder, which basically means that Congress does not have the right to do the court's jobs without the courts. They don't have the right to bring someone before Congress and punish them as if they were a court. Right, and, right. And that's something that that was obviously important to the founders, something that Parliament and Britain had actually done was, was punish individual citizens using Parliament as the instrument, which is obviously not something that we want to see happen here. Right. I you could imagine Trump saying, the courts have screwed me over in their determination of whether or not I lost the election. So what we're going to do is we're going to have the Senate hold a trial to determine whether or not the, there was election fraud. Right. You could bypass the courts that way. That's kind of the same idea with the Bill of Attainder, except you're trying individuals. You've Instead of using the court system, which has a a process and a method, and you have to have to be certain charges against the individual. You could say, no, I'm sure, Trump could have said, I'm sure Hillary Clinton was doing something terrible. Pull her in in front of the Senate, accuse her of things, try her, and have her punished. That's a bill of attainder. Yeah, which is obviously a terrible precedent. I don't think that this is where this is heading, but it is something to keep an eye on. If, if this happens again and becomes a normal thing, or something like this becomes a normal thing, it's definitely going to be a red flag. But yeah, the legislator starts saying we won and now we can punish our enemies. Escalation. Exactly. More escalation. But in, in the meantime, it is definitely a show be because they just simply they simply aren't going to have the votes. It's symbolic to begin with, which which makes it doubly ineffective in terms of actually changing anything, as Dan said. Yeah, I mean, it might be the most effective way that Congress uses its time these days. I mean, they're not like <laughs> writing a lot of legislation and making big changes, right? <laughs> like, posturing is their job at this point. I would love to see some legislation. Now, and maybe there will be some actually in the near future from uh, the Democrats who've newly claimed a majority. That's, that's usually when it happens is right after an election you'll get. You'll get somebody who's going to try and do something. The vast majority of the time, you get the rubber stamping we've discussed several times now. So another controversy that's come up in the last couple of weeks is the the debate around Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a uh, Republican congresswoman who has come under fire because of uh, because of things she said in the past, both before and after she was elected, but specifically some some posts and things that she she said before she was elected 
And I don't know why it came out now, but for whatever reason, for whatever reason, those comments, those posts were brought to light and and the uh, the Democratic leaders pushed for her to be removed from her committees because of those things that she had said, to basically be taken out of a position of power because of those things that she had said. And the Marjorie Taylor Greene story has one thing going for it. The impeachment stories do not. It's kind of funny if you got a black sense of humor. <laughs> some of the posts, some of the comments, pretty funny. They'd be funnier if they weren't actually happening, if it weren't actually Congress. But here we are. Welcome to 2021. Yeah, so so what Dan's referring to is uh, she has made several conspiratorial statements, um, talked about false flag events, talked about uh, a few other things. You know, there may have been some uh, some lasers involved. Lighting um, fires from space. You're, you're, you're welcome to, to check those out yourself. But the reason we bring this up, because when you look at it, what's happening here is just classic mudslinging, right? You've got the left who's trying to paint the right as radicals, et cetera, et cetera. The reason, the reason we're pointing this out is because Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is a great example of, of what we're talking about when we talked about our future of the GOP episode, about how you're going to have two factions within the GOP the uh, the Trump 2.0 faction and the anyone but Trump faction. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is an example of the Trump faction, of the people who are so completely done with government that they want someone in office who really doesn't believe in any of the mainstream narratives. And by that, we mean any. And, and that's who they get with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then you have the conservatives who are put in the awkward position of either defending Marjorie Taylor Greene, which they kind of have to do as a fellow GOP congressman. You know, they need to hold the line. Yeah, otherwise also, they lose the seat. Yeah. They, otherwise they, they lose, lose the seat. But also they stand by Marjorie Taylor Greene and they get put in the same boat as the person who's making those kind of claims. Right. It's like a hot potato. The Republicans are like trying to keep it close, but they don't want it actually be holding it. And the Democrats keep picking it up and throwing it at him. Like, here, no, this is yours. She's yours. This is what you guys are like. And part of the reason the left is pushing so hard against Marjorie Taylor Greene is because by doing that, they deepen the fracture in the GOP. They they put pressure on both those sides to do something. And the most likely thing that would happen is for the GOP to to truly fracture and to have the GOP start fighting each other instead of fighting the left. And that's like we talked about the real danger for the GOP in the next few years. If if this trend continues, it could definitely get worse. Marjorie Taylor Greene, as far as like her actual positions and what she actually thinks now might be fine. I don't know at what level she has fallen down the, the conspiracy hole. And if she is actually at the stage that we discussed in our episode on biases, where, where you begin to really be unable to trust it, almost anything, any mainstream narrative, as Brad was saying, she apologized for her past statements and said those don't reflect the way she thinks now. And that may be entirely true. She may actually be fine. You know, that could have been a phase. I don't know. But that's not what these stories are about. It's not actually about what she thinks and what she might be. It's in about many ways, how they it's can not paint really her. about her. Right, right. She's a useful tool in this. She's a useful face with some useful lines that they can put and say, behold the GOP, right? This is, this is the Republican Party. This is what they are, what they're becoming. And Republicans have to reckon with that. They have to, they have to, and they have to try and find a way to navigate that claim without alienating the faction and without also agreeing to that painting and that portrayal of themselves. And that's no easy task. It's a, this is a fight about the story. What is actually happening? What is the GOP? And it's not an easy fight. And it, if the Democrats will have their way, they will paint all of the Republicans as this caricature of Marjorie Taylor Greene. As you may have noticed with these first two things we've talked about, in many ways, these issues aren't really news. There's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of mudslinging. Really, what all of this is, is it's just a, 
It's just dealing with the ramifications of what's happened over the past two months as the two parties are solidifying their new party lines, the new they're even clarifying what the the battleground is going to be for the next few years. And that is what this is, is really they're preparing for the next battles. You know, on both sides, yeah. you're preparing for the next battles. And that's why they're making so many symbolic gestures, because they're trying to frame the discussion, frame the debate in ways that are going to benefit their side. And from how it's shaking up so far, the left is doing a much better job than the right. Yeah, they're the in a good position. The left is going to be in a much better now. position. Right. right now, the right has really only been able to say one thing effectively, and that's that Biden has signed a whole bunch of executive orders. You know, that is basically the only the only solid punch the Republicans have been able to land <laughs> is saying, look at how many executive orders Biden has signed. <laughs> to be fair to them, every this is a difficult position for any party right after they lose an election and they lose the House and Senate. And they haven't, I guess they haven't fully lost the Senate. I mean, the Senate lines are so close. But this is, this is, you're on the defensive, right? All you can do is point fingers. But as we pointed out in the, the GOP episode we did about the future of the GOP, there are much deeper problems in the GOP that make this even harder than normal, that make it possible that they'll be in this underdog position for a long time. But yeah, if you haven't heard, go listen to our uh, future of the GOP episode where we expound on that. Right. These are these are really just developments in line with what we expected there. These are predictable things. Not exact you couldn't say that it would be about Marjorie Taylor Greene, but it was gonna be about somebody like that. They were yeah. going to they were going to try and push this line and, and force the GOP to reckon with what they are and what they're becoming and the factions within them. Because really the specifics don't matter. It's about they changing don't. the debate, changing the discussion. They don't, and it's and it's posturing. It's not gonna change policies now, it might change votes later. But again, I'm skeptical it'll even do that. It'll even do that, given the given how firm the partisan lines are. In some ways, in some ways, I feel like politics right now, the way it goes now, these kind of stories, they're playing a game that started. I mean, I mean, the game's always been there, but they're playing it in a way that's really developed alongside political science and has really been perfected over the last two or three decades. And the game is not working like it did when it first when they first started to do it. And as both sides have gotten better, things have been changing as this continues. This game cannot continue. You're going to have more people like Donald Trump who really mix it up. Chaotic elements will be thrown in to mix up a system that isn't working because these posturing things are not changing votes anymore. They're not changing votes. They change almost no opinions. Coronavirus changed a lot of opinions. That story changed a lot. The normal posturing is getting less and less effective. It'll definitely be interesting to watch over the next few years how things shake out. So the next thing I want to talk about is uh, the next COVID relief and stimulus bill. <laughs> and, uh, and I have some thoughts about that. First of all, if you haven't listened to it yet, listen to our episode on on inflation and stimulus. I think it's episode nine, where we talk about this at length a few months ago. Everything we said there is still absolutely true and totally applies to this next stimulus package. What I want to talk about is, is people's opinions shifting as we were coming up on our third stimulus package. And, and how they're shifting is very simple. We've been we've been paid twice now. You know, we've been given money for nothing twice now. And people are talking about giving us money for no reason a third time. And now people just want money. I mean, I <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, let me let me ask you an open rhetorical question going out over the mic. Who doesn't want money? Right? And why not take the money? It's I've been listening to conversations that people have had about the stimulus package, and it's so clear where the priorities are. Just just give us the money already is how people are talking about it. You know, when when the GOP talked about restricting who can get the money, people started freaking out because they're like, what if I'm above that threshold and I don't get my free money? You know what I mean? And it's it's just become <sighs> I don't even I don't even know guys. I don't even know. I mean 
I, you know, people talk about bread and circuses and about how if the government just gave people free stuff, people stop caring about what the government's doing. You know, we're definitely seeing that with these stimulus packages because, because there have been many times where I've caught myself thinking the exact same thing where I'm like, oh, there's that stimulus package again, that stupid stimulus, that stupid, stupid stimulus package in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, hey, I wouldn't mind that $1,400. You know, once that thing passed, that thing I'm not happy about, oh, that money though, it's going to be nice. (laughs) It messes with your head. It really does. If you haven't listened to our inflation and stimulus episode, you have to listen to it because it, it is the most effective illusion that mankind, as far as I know, has ever created. It is, it is the highest scale deception that has ever been designed in human history, and it works almost 100% of the time. It works until it doesn't work. It works until you get hyperinflation, you get currency collapse, or you get, you know, you get other problems around it yeah. that you're always playing with. But until the house of cards comes down, you can continue to hide the cost, to obfuscate where that money is coming from, so that even though it's hurting people, they can't see how it's hurting them, but they can see how it's helping them. You right. know, you can see the $1,400, but you cannot see the overreaching costs because they're they're too complicated it's too hidden it's it's coming out in too many varied ways right for you to ever be able to track that down for anyone to track down the specific ways that it's going to hurt you you know obviously it's through inflation as the primary tool but how that actually plays out in terms of how it's going to affect you specifically is just far too complicated right it's but it's $1400 is not complicated it's not. And and how you convince people to vote against that, to say no to that. I you don't can't. know. I don't I don't know I don't how you can convince anyone. <laughs> and so here's my question. What is the government going to do? Are they going to just keep giving people money every year? Is this going to be the new normal where we get checks every year or every two years or right before and then right after an election. And this just becomes a normal thing, which continues to to further destabilize the economy and, and make things far, far more complicated. I don't know. Right. Because, be, because this stimulus package is not just about, about the stimulus. Every time a stimulus package is passed, a whole heap of other laws, not just money spending laws, but actual regulation, restriction, new rules are passed that may not have been able to pass otherwise, but it was because congressmen can't vote no against free money. And so they can get away with so many things they couldn't normally get away with. Is that going to be the new way that Congress passes legislation? Right. We'll add that to the omnibus bills. There'll be the omnibus bills, yeah. and then there plus, will be the stimulus bills. Plus stimulus for everybody. Yeah. And, and I, I know some people it. are hearing this like, wait, wait, what are you talking about, Brad? The, they're this is a COVID-19 thing, but it's not. It's really not. You could, you can, now governors can, some, some places are locked down, right? Some places it does look like a COVID-19 thing. Other places are not locked down. Other places, everybody is working again. Yeah, the this economy money goes is to bouncing them too. back. Right, right, right. Every, not everyone's working getting right. The economy does take some time to bounce back. But in terms of like, there are no jobs just being closed by government fiat. In which case, like in those places, this is not, this is just free money. This is just free money. And they, and they know it. They're not, as you said, they're not restricting it to a very narrow group of people who don't have jobs. They're no, not doing it's supposed that. to be, it's supposed to be reaching something like 90% of the population. Right. People keep arguing it's a relief bill. The, the difference is if you, were, if you were giving some kind of welfare, some kind of relief, what you would do is you would say, who needs this? That's a question they're asking only at the most general level of income or at the most general level of you know a hard cutoff. But everyone under that is getting it, even if they're better off than they were before COVID started. Yeah. And, and as, as Dan says, as the economy starts improving, as larger and larger portions of the country are reaching not not pre-COVID-19 levels, but at least there's a general trend of recovery. You can't justify it in terms of COVID-19. This is 
in so many ways just a payoff. I mean, Biden promised that he would do it, and now he's going to do it. I mean, when Biden, when you, you've got articles about Biden's conversations with Congress about it, and and Biden says, listen, we can we can compromise on many issues in this stimulus package, but we cannot change the $1,400. Why? Because it's such a visible promise, not because people necessarily need it. Yeah. As Dan said, targeted targeted relief would make much more sense in terms of COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. If in that's the thing, the way what it's supposed to do, if it all of the benefits from this, all of the costs of this, if they're good now, they're also good during other times when for poor people, right? There's no there's no reason that this is uniquely good now. Unless they are uniquely no, and that's, suffering and that's what I'm these saying conditions. After yeah. people getting it three times I think people are going to want it again, and I think the government's going to do it, and I think right. it may it may become the normal thing. Yeah, until That's the a, whole system comes crashing down. Yeah, that only accelerates things. I mean, the if you look at the deficit, if you look at the increase in how much is being printed during this time, the house of cards is teetering. We'll put it that way. Yeah, and it may not come down. Maybe maybe it won't. Who knows? These those things are not predictable. What is predictable is that there's massive amounts of malinvestment and that there's massive amounts of corrections that need to come at some point soon. And on that note, let's talk some COVID. Some of my favorite headlines have been about Gavin Newsom, California governor. He gets a lot of flack from Republicans, and perhaps rightfully so. Cuomo in New York is the other one. Yeah, but but lately it's been Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom has dominated the headlines. They keep trying to recall him. They keep, <laughs> they keep trying to, by, by gathering signatures and things, hold a vote to get rid of him. I don't know how close those have been to being successful. I doubt they'll be successful. It, that rarely happens. But he's taking the threat very seriously. In fact, he has backed down and started to open some things up as a result. Don't worry, though. He was very clear to state that his walking back of the regulations had absolutely nothing to do with the recall vote. And Brad and I are discussing this. I think we probably, I tend to agree with him. I mean, not that it has nothing to do with it. It has something to do with the recall. That's got to be at least in his mind and one of the reasons he's doing this. But I think the primary reason he's opening things up now is that the election's over. With the election, where Biden is now in office, Democrats don't have to hold the line they had to hold before. Before, if they had given ground, if, if Gavin Newsom had said, you know, I've been looking at the studies, I've found that closing businesses does not actually help reduce COVID, which is something you can statistically show at this point. So I'm going to change the policies. If he had done that two, three months ago, that could have changed the election. You get Democrats breaking lines on the claim that everything that they are doing is necessary to fight COVID-19, and the Republicans are irresponsible, you get a different outcome in the election. Now the election's over, they are free to follow the science, which is somewhat ironic. <laughs> it is, it is, and it's a reminder that, you know, the, the left claims to be the party of of the facts, of realism, of science, and the and the right claims to be the party of freedom and the party of the people and common sense, but only when politics say that that's what it should be, only when that helps them politically. You know, the left will abandon science and the right will abandon freedom time and time again to win. They because will. That's, because that's their strongest incentive is to beat the other side above all else. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. And there's no run. It's no wonder that a number of scientific institutions that have probably done a, a great deal of good over the years have lost public trust. You don't have to make a political choice for, for people to say, these are hypocrites. A lot of people are upset about the, how little trust there is in a lot of the scientific institutions and a lot of other public institutions. And they think that the problem is that the people are just believing too many conspiracy theories. And I think they have the causation of that exactly backwards. I think the problem is that too many of these institutions have decided to make political decisions. And as a result, people have seen that, lost trust, and are starting to believe more and more things that may or may not be true. 
Yeah, because they start to lose trust in all institutions because so many have have burned them before. Right. And that really the problem here is that these institutions are losing trust, not that people aren't trusting the institutions. Yeah. You know, we've made fun of of the left for so often saying, why don't you believe in science? You know, we're the party of science. As if science is is this this pinnacle that you can hold up, and if and if you're a scientist, if you are on the side of science, then no one can question you. Forgetting the fact that science is about the empirical search for truth, regardless of status, regardless of establishment, regardless of whatever your previous hypothesis was. You know, most of science actually consists of disproving current theories, coming up with new theories, and trying to disprove those. And I don't know, I don't know when we lost that, but most major scientific discoveries have come not from the established scientific community, but from the fringe, from those who were on the edge. You look at Galileo, you look at Einstein, you know, you look at Copernicus, you look at so many of these great scientific minds who came up with more effective theories that better explained the universe. And Often they were not appreciated in their time. Right. There, there's a tension in science that has to be has to be reconciled. Is if you don't want what's accurate to become unquestionable, because it's precisely through the questioning of what we know now that you move forward. As soon as established science begins to wield authority, the kind of authority to silence dissent, the kind of authority to decide who gets to be heard and who doesn't it becomes stagnant. It stops progressing. You have to have both. There, there is something necessarily anti-establishment within science for it to continue moving forward. And that's a virtue that political motivations cannot offer it. <laughs> they offer the opposite. They, they offer to give it power and authority to hold the line where they are now. And it's one of the many reasons why I think politics is doing science a massive disservice as more of the funding comes from political institutions, as more of the direction comes from political institutions, and as the established science gets more and more power to direct laws. I think that the end result is that this will actually significantly hinder the progress and the pursuit of science. Because right now, in many ways, the idea of the establishment of science is, is an illusion that, mm-hmm. as we've talked about many different things, there's there's no one scientific consensus on most issues. Instead, there are many, many different scientific theories and, and different people doing different research in different fields, but there's one officially sanctioned scientific theory that gets the backing of political leaders of government a funding few for key, research. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Government funded research programs and and journals and all of these things that make it seem like there is just one scientific establishment that believes one thing. Mm-hmm. And the stronger that that illusion continues, the more it'll become reality. And that's what we don't want. Right. That's exactly we need, what we don't want with science. Science relies on on change, on progress, on new ideas. Yeah. Science, for so long, people have thought that the, the term science should just automatically bring a deference from the people, a trust. But our scientific institutions would be far more effective once they realize that they have to earn that trust, that they need to convince people and persuade them that they're worthy of that trust, that they're not going to be politically motivated, that they're going to actually give them as good an assessment as they can. And if they start doing that, they will gain the trust of the people again. I don't, I have, I have every confidence in the ability of accurate information to be persuasive, even in the face of disinformation. The problem is that we combat disinformation with propaganda instead of truth. We combat bad stories with, with authoritative decrees instead of persuasion. And if we could just if people would stop doing that in every type of institution, from, from science to politics, stop trying to control the story and start trying to become what you should be. Stop trying to control the message and start finding the message that should be told. And, 
and earn that trust back. Earn that trust back. And it's going to be it's going to be slow, but you can do it. Here's a small story to to illustrate that. Many months ago, back when when in the United States the question of whether or not you should wear a mask was at its peak, and many anti-maskers were pushing the idea that wearing a mask was dangerous, that you weren't able to breathe, and that you couldn't live wearing a mask all the time. There was one doctor who was urging people to wear masks, and people weren't listening because of those reasons. And so what he did is he put on a mask, and he ran a marathon wearing his mask the whole time to help convince people that you could wear a mask and still function normally, that you could exercise, that you could work in manual labor, whatever, while wearing a mask. And the, the point of that story is that he saw that there was a lack of trust in the scientific idea that you can wear a mask safely and that it's effective. And so instead of just telling people, listen, I'm a doctor, do what I say. Yeah, check my credentials. He did something. Yeah, check my credentials. He, he, could, he could talk to patients and say, no, I've tested this to the best of my ability, and here's what I've found. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up credentials. That's, <laughs> there are enough people with credentials that you can find somebody with credentials representing even the most absurd things. That's not enough to see who yeah, you, you should trust. you have to actually persuade. You have to actually persuade. You have to show people that you're going to be reliable, that you're not going to bend to outside influences, and that you're, you are worthy of their trust and make that case. So often it's, it's what the Republicans and Democrats are doing with the impeachment. They're using it as a podium to tell people who believe them how smart they are and assure them that all the people who disagree with them are stupid. And that, that may do a lot to, uh, make your choir, your own choir feel good about themselves, it does not make converts. It yeah. does not bring new people to you. It does not help them trust you. And I would love for the tone of, of every institution to, to start changing that way. Anti-institutionalism broadly and the kind of conspiracy theory rabbit hole where you begin to lose trust in everything is extremely common. And it's only going to get more common until people start Stop insisting that they should be believed and start showing people why they should be believed. Absolutely. On the point of lockdowns, I want to point out one thing that may clarify something we said before and may help people understand going forward. Lockdowns is a term we've discussed in the past that we've made the claim and are willing to will continue to defend it that lockdowns do not work. But I think as I've been reading more, that people might get the wrong idea from the term lockdown. They, they might point to things that there is data for, that this does help prevent the spread of COVID-19 and other contagious diseases, but which are not actually technically a part of what the term lockdown is being used to describe. A lockdown is actually a very narrow term used to describe three things. People ordered to stay at home, were required to provide a reason for movement outside of home. Two, assemblies limited to very small thresholds. Talking single digits here. And three, businesses and activities forced to stay closed even if they do not technically constitute assemblies and would like to stay open. Now I'm slightly paraphrasing an article by Lyman Stone titled Lockdowns Don't Work. He'll get into more detail in some of these things. Those are the things that constitute a lockdown. Those are the things that when we say the studies show that lockdowns don't work, that you can actually look at graphs of COVID cases and you can try and guess where they locked things down and you won't be able to because it doesn't have any, doesn't seem to have any statistical effect. You'd never be able to guess which states have locked down and which haven't. You'd never be able to guess when they locked down in the states that have. And it appears to, by the concepts of incubation and how the, the virus spreads and the time it takes, the trends and curves are not affected by these lockdowns. As such, businesses and activities should be open. People should not be ordered to stay home. They can go to the park, they can go to the beach, they can do all kinds of things outside that will not increase the spread of COVID-19. And assemblies don't have to be limited to single digits. Now you shouldn't have, there is data to suggest you shouldn't have assemblies that are like hundreds of people or thousands of people. That, that's pretty well proved. And obviously that makes sense, right? 
but small gatherings, that actually hasn't been proved. There isn't the evidence to say, you should, for Thanksgiving, not get together with any other families. (laughs) You can actually control your exposure to people who have COVID-19 in your private circles. You can do that. You can have friends, you can get together with them, and you can avoid COVID-19. And if you get it, you can quarantine yourself. These are now if you are extremely high threat, right? This is a different case. We talked about this. You don't you don't treat people high risk. Yeah, if you are <laughs> high high threat sounds like you're gonna infect a bunch of other people. Like your deliberate problem. If you're high risk, obviously the rules should be different for you because the risk level of someone who is above 50 is hundreds of times the risk level of somebody who's 25 and younger. And just to clarify, Dan, when you're talking about the rules for them, you're talking about what's what's advisable in terms of, of mm-hmm. mitigating the spread. Correct. Right. And, and what's advisable for their own health? You know, wh- the, how much risk are they willing to assume? They ought to know that the risk for them is way higher and act accordingly. Because we still believe that individuals are going to be the best... Judges. Uh, yeah, the best judges, exactly of what they should do in order to mitigate the risk for themselves, to mitigate the risk for others based off of, you know, the thousands of individual factors that apply to them. That that whether it's lockdown or something else, government is not the best place for this action. But in the cases of lockdowns, not only is it highly unjust and not right, it's also completely ineffective. Right. And so I- it's nice to get get some more verification of that as time has gone on, that as more lockdowns have come and gone, the picture just becomes more and more clear of the right. ineffectiveness of these extreme lockdowns, that some things have been shown to mitigate the spread, as Dan said, and listed some of those things, but some of these more extreme ones really have not, which yeah. is surprising. It is, it, it and it is, yeah, maybe that's counterintuitive, and that's fine, but that is what the data is showing. Gavin Newsom has been opening up things and and you'd think, some of you might think, well, maybe that's because the COVID cases are really low there because they've been really effective. They're at the highest point they've ever been. And so if lockdowns are helpful, this is exactly the wrong time to loosen restrictions and they're loosening restrictions. New York is a fun case too, where you get Governor Cuomo up there who's, uh, who was just recently talking about, oh, this is a paraphrase, but the quote itself is probably even better. He's saying, we got to open up. We can't wait any longer because if we do, there won't be anything left to open. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's right. Uh, New York is desolate in a lot of cases. A lot of the, it, it may be decades before the restaurant. Yeah, sorry. I, I didn't laugh because, because that's, that's good. I laughed because that's what 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 we've been saying, what what people have been saying for a year now about how detrimental these lockdowns are. And, and to finally hear, you know, one of the strongest proponents of lockdowns, Governor Cuomo, to be saying the exact same thing is funny in a sad kind of way. Yeah, it is. He has to explain to them why he's putting them all at risk and risking their lives for small economic benefits, which he's, you know, it, it's the exact opposite of what he's been saying this whole time. Yeah, so exactly. To, to hear him be like, we don't have a choice is is sad. I, I know people in New York, and they live an extremely different life than I do. And it has not made New York better. It's made it much worse. It's made it worse by every metric, including exposure rate. New York has been far worse than Texas has. Well, it's just because you don't mess with Texas. With Texas? <laughs> <laughs> Let me try that one more time. <laughs> Clearly, I mess with Texas since I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> but COVID knows not to mess with Texas. But COVID knows. Yeah, they point their revolvers or something and it works wonders. Oh, yeah. Shoot it out Every, of the air. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> I you, can't. You have those droplets and they're gone. <laughs> I get a kick every time I pass uh, like a Texas gift store, gift shop, you know, type place. I laugh to myself. I love it. I love it. it just cracks me up. I, I love that Texas has its own myth, you know, its own stories about itself. I thought they had been overplayed until I moved here. No, it's real. It's real. It's people, real. People are proud to be Texans. They uh they like it. And it's kind of fun. I don't know. It's it's a obviously it's just a team kind of incentive, but it's it's different. It's different than the states that I lived in before. No, I get it. I'd I'd love to be proud of my state. I just can't. We're going to cut that out. 
just in case I want to run for local office. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was just unnecessarily it, negative. It was. Uh, anyways. One other COVID lockdown thing that may be worth mentioning, and this isn't a part of what's technically referred to as lockdown is schools. There is a lot of good data for closing schools during pandemics, broadly speaking. And so some people are still looking at that and saying, even, even people who I would agree with on their analysis of COVID-19 on a lot of issues, people who are looking at the old standards, and by old I mean before 2020, when we still were not so scared that we thought lockdowns were a good idea and we still knew that they were a bad idea, which we have since relearned, hopefully, who think that closing schools down needs to happen because in most pandemics, schools become a, a festering place for whatever is spreading. I think in this point, COVID-19 is uniquely harmless. And this has been discussed a number of times, and you can look into this for more information. It does not spread among children at nearly the rate it spreads among other people. And the fatality rate among children is absurdly low. It is significantly less than the flu. Significantly less. Of course, you get to older categories, and it's so much more lethal than the flu that you can't compare them. But for children, it's, it's, it's many times less than the fatality rate of the flu. And so that's where having kids go to school, but then apply all those same factors we talked about, like, you know, being able to assess the risk factor of their families and mm -hmm. all these other factors that you can use to, to effectively do that, just as you do with people going back to work, yeah. could, be, could be done without causing serious issues in terms of the spread of the virus. Exactly. You let people who, who want to attend online attend online so that they can not put family members at risk or others. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. No, and I know, like, for example, there are school districts here in Utah that are doing exactly that, where where they're allowing the families and students to choose whether they want to do some in-person or all online so that they have the safest option for their family. So uh, we've covered a lot of things. We want to talk about one more thing real quick. Hopefully one more thing. <laughs> you know, n number one rule of, of anything is is you never announce before you start a list how many are in that how list. many that's right because you always shoot yourself in the foot <laughs> right it never we'll benefits about two more things it's never and, and someone will go back and say hey you said one more thing what happened digression aside we want to talk about gamestop and some of those other stocks amc etc and there's been huge pushback against robin hood because of what happened, because Robinhood restricted people being able to invest in GameStop. And after that happened, GameStop stock wavered and then started to drop. And whether or not it picks up again, the fact remains that there's decent evidence for the fact that because so many people were using Robinhood to invest in it and Robinhood stopped them from being able to invest in it, they realized it wasn't going to go up. And so they cashed out and caused the stock to shrink, which, you know, you could argue is Robin Hood affecting the market because it, it did affect the market. And so then, of course, there's allegations of market manipulation by Robin Hood and all of these things. What's interesting is uh, the stock market is much more complicated than I would like it to be. And, and I've tried to try to try to understand how the stock market works, because in its most simplest form, the stock market is very simple. You've got a company you know, you have the company who sells shares in that company as stock, and then people buy those shares and sell them to other people, et cetera, et cetera. And they own part of that company. And as the company's value increases, the stock increases. That is so far from how the stock market currently operates that it's crazy. A lot of people think that, that with Robinhood, you know, you give Robinhood your money, they they purchase the stock for you and then you own the stock and the transaction's done in a second, just like you'd buy a candy bar from the store. But in reality, it's much more complicated. Robinhood is is part of a clearinghouse and Robinhood, when they make the transaction, there's a two-day waiting period before it's finalized. And in those two days, any change in valuation of that stock affects both Robinhood and the clearinghouse because of the complicated legal rules that are in place in this system. If you're not confused yet, then I'm not explaining it right. Wait, let me interject a question, Brad. Why is there a two-day waiting period? 
because the stock market was uh, <laughs> was created over a hundred years ago when things were very different than they are now. And so the legal rules that were set in place were set in place for a system that was primarily not digital. And so so you've you've got an archaic system that is confusing simply because it doesn't make sense in today's digital age. How the stock market operates doesn't make sense. Realistically, you should be able to just purchase the stock through Robinhood or whatever app you'd like and have there be no waiting period, no no large cash deposits just in case and have it be relatively simple. Yeah, cuz I can I can buy any one of thousands of computers made around the world and have them at my house tomorrow. But but the stock market can't change a few numbers in a digital database for 2, two days. days. And it's two days after the the trade day. So, you know, if you trade on Tuesday, then it's Thursday that it's finalized. It's not 48 hours. It's two days. No, it's it's two business days after. Well, it may not be business days. I'm not sure about the weekend. I, I'm, I'm not a trader. This is not my, my specialty. <laughs> That's good. We'd be trying, we're not going to try you for treason then. <laughs> with a D, Dan. With a D. Trader with a D. <laughs> And so what happens is, is, and there's a reason that as this happened, Robinhood pushed, made a huge uh, investor push and raised billions of dollars because they needed it in order to, to match the clearinghouse requirements for them to be able to make the investments they were making in these stocks because they were so volatile, which increased the requirements exponentially because of how much the value of the stock could shift in the two days after the stock is purchased. Got it? <laughs> You're definitely making the, a compelling case for your claim that it's way more complicated than that. <laughs> than, than I buy stocks and now I own a share of a company and I can sell them or whatever. And, and this is all just a side issue from the fact that what's happened with, with GameStop has proved that the stock market in so many ways has very little to do with what these companies are actually doing, which means that the stock market is less a market that's about the economy and about companies and is more just a very, very large casino that allows large corporations like these hedge funds to make bets and also allows individuals to make these bets. And it's funny you mentioned casino because a lot of the conversation about this is is about the nature of the stock market. Is it a casino or is it not? And I've heard people who agree on a lot of other things disagree on what label to apply to it. I don't know if if casino is the perfect word for describing the stock market. No, there is no perfect word to describe the stock market. Whatever you want to call it, Look at what you can do. <laughs> Look at what GameStop did. You, if, if you don't want to label that casino, that's fine. But don't pretend that the label changes what can and can't happen there. Yeah, just to clarify, there is no natural way to put $1 into an investment today and have that $1 be worth $20 tomorrow. That's there's there's no ice cream shop in the world you can invest in that will give you that kind of returns. You know, it's it's unnatural. People talk about looking at Amazon and Tesla where their stock has exploded, but compare how their stock has exploded to how quickly their business has grown. And it's not proportional. Yes, Amazon and Tesla may be growing, but not at the rate their stock is growing. And that's because there's this artificial element that is far larger than the natural element than right. the actual growth of these businesses. Right, it's their perceived. So yes, it may not it may not be a casino, but like a casino, you are gambling and it's and like a casino, the house always wins. <laughs> yeah. That that as you as you look at it, talk about these big hedge funds getting hurt, there were also big hedge funds and big investors that benefited from this and and that's what you're going to see every time. And, you know, you look at there's this big push online to uh, to short silver, even though there are so many large corporations that are heavily invested in silver that are only going to benefit from it. And and so this idea of of punishing Wall Street by getting into the stock market 
is not going to work. Not in the long run. In the long run, all you're doing is increasing the pool of money that those stock, that those hedge funds, that that Wall Street can benefit from. Because you're increasing the overall value of the stock market by putting more of your money into it. This system is fundamentally broken in so many different ways that we don't have time or the intellectual patience to get into. Yeah, there, there's so much to sort through. We, we're, we've this. I'm glad that this GameStop thing happened because it gets people looking at it and considering Absolutely. what could be changed. Um, so many of the rules that you mentioned, the old rules, are unnecessary at this point, but they continue like the two-day wait, they continue because it allows the game to continue to be played the way it has always been played. And I say game because this is not... I wouldn't call me deciding to make something and you deciding to buy it and both of us benefiting a game. I would call that life. That's just the way things work. If I can persuade you to to buy something and you want what I'm selling, that's just the way things work. That's, That's fine. But if there are strange rules that create a delay in when I can give them to you, give this item to you, and you have the potential to actually bet against my business by selling something you don't have and acquiring it later in the hopes that I'm not doing well, and that's only made possible by a weird series of rules that are legally enforced that wouldn't otherwise be there, we have a game, you know, we have, we have something that is, that works a certain way because that's just what the rules are and you just do what you can within that system. Yeah. A game is not about producing. It's not about following natural laws. It's about working within a set of artificial laws in order to beat someone else. Yeah. And that's, and that's what the stock market the stock is, market whether is. or not you want to call it a casino. And, and we're not saying that individuals shouldn't get involved in the stock market. What we're saying is that be aware when you do that this is a game. Yeah. You know that that when you're investing in the stock market or when you're investing in cryptocurrency you're not investing. You're gambling. Yeah. And and you may win big or you may lose because and it won't have necessarily have to do with what's happening in the real world because of these artificial rules of the game. Right. And somebody has designed those rules, right? Somebody is involved in the process and says when GameStop hits a certain point, or these clearinghouses need a certain amount of money, or when stocks do certain things, everything has to be shut down for a while, right? If you, you look at some of the normal functions that happen when there's a big, big increase in the stock market or a big bust in the stock market, these things, there are all kinds of mechanisms that come into play, hidden rules. And these rules are designed by somebody as part of this game, yeah. and they benefit specific people and specific groups. And so it's a, it's a game you're gambling and the house always wins. Now, with regards to stocks and markets and how they would function if you left them to be determined by uh, the interests of the players involved, as any exchange normally does, where you have two people who are both benefiting from every exchange, there might be a lot of the same features. It's hard to sort through the stock market and say what's actually not wouldn't be there if this were a free exchange, if this were market-based, and what would remain? Perhaps there would still be some way to short sell. Perhaps there would still be significant amount of volatility. But it would not nearly be on the scale it is now, and it would be fundamentally different in so many ways that if you think the stock market represents the market, you are fundamentally wrong. You've made assumptions about the way that it works, Absolutely. the interests, how the rules work, and how much of an impact they have on the game. It is not a market. Wall Street is not a it market. It is like so many other areas of the market, not a market anymore. It's not a market Because anymore, of the yeah. amount of distortion that's occurred. Yeah, it, it's a game. And now there may be a few market interests still at play in the process, but they are more than overwhelmed the other incentives created by the rules that have been put in place artificially. And with that, there's our weekly recap. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you tune in next week. Thank you guys for listening. This has been Rethinking Politics, episode 29. You can find us on 
all of the major podcast apps as well as on Facebook. You can email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. Feel free to reach out, comment on any of those apps as well as social media, including Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email us on our Gmail, and we'll be happy to get back to you. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Till then.